Welcome to day five of this renal week. It has been yet again another exciting day on the convention floor with a number of late breaking clinical trials, wonderful poster presentations, and any number of other sessions. Today I have three distinguished gentlemen here. I have Dr. Fred Finkelstein from Yale New Haven, Dr. Charles Pusey from the Hammersmith Hospital in London, UK, and Dr. Thomas Clayman from the University of Pittsburgh, all of whom have various and varied interests of one kind or another. So welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for being with us today. So, Charles, you come from across that transatlantic pond. Uh, what was exciting to you today? Well, I, I come across the transatlantic pond uh, to this meeting every year, if I can possibly make it, because uh, I find this the, the best, most satisfying renal meeting there is in terms of the quality of the science, particularly, and the quality of the clinical uh, trial work. Uh, and it's something that many of my colleagues in Europe would not miss. What was the highlight today? One of the highlights today was going to the late-breaking trial session. Because this session, I didn't know what was going to be in it. I, I wasn't sure what trials would be presented. But I knew that they would be of interest uh, because they were put in that particular session. And I was uh, impressed by the uh, fact that there was a trial of frequent uh, six times a week hemodialysis versus the conventional three times a week dialysis. Uh, and it proved a positive result uh, in terms of left ventricular mass and also the sort of um, personal health assessment to uh, an SF36. So, Fred, you are an expert in, in all things dialytic. What did you think of those late-breaking clinical trials, especially the uh, dialysis trials? So the frequent hemodialysis trial is sort of of major importance. It's the first trial to show an improvement in outcomes in patients with end-stage renal disease. And the potential implications for the way we manage patients um, are really going to need to be rethought after this trial as everyone has a chance to digest all the information from the trial. But the results that were presented today are really very exciting. There was also a nocturnal uh, dialysis trial. What about that one? That was not quite so positive, was it? <laughs> that was not as positive and it introduces an area of confusion because the expectation had been, and some of the questions after the presentation um, occurred, indicated that the expectation was that the nocturnal patients, that is patients with six times a week nocturnal, would do significantly better than the patients on conventional um, dialysis. But that's not in fact what happened. But there are some problems with that trial. The sample size was small, the recruitment was very difficult. Um, so I think you need to wait to see all the information from that trial so it can be properly interpreted. Uh, I noticed that uh, in the frequent uh, hemodialysis group there were more vascular interventions, and earlier vascular interventions. So for someone not expert in the field, is this going to pose a problem if you want patients to be dialyzed that often? So that's been a problem with all um, trials that have looked at more frequent hemodialysis, the problem of um, the necessity to have revisions in the vascular access. And that's an issue that really needs to be thought about, but it's an issue of weighing the risks versus the benefits. So the risks as presented were vascular interventions, and the benefits were clear in terms of left ventricular mass and physical composite score from the SF36. It's astonishingly uh, how uh, many trials there were today for a field that has had so few uh, randomized clinical trials. Today was a smorgasbord of any number of them, including a focal sclerosis trial that uh, 
unfortunately didn't show a benefit uh, with respect to uh, calcineurin inhibitor cyclosporine when compared to large doses of uh, dexamethasone and mycophenol a monfetil. I think what we learned from that trial is that the era of too much steroid may be mercifully coming to an end. Uh, we'll come back to these trials because there are other trials uh, of note as well. Tom, moving more into the basic science arena, uh, what struck your fancy today? I think today uh, one of the most enjoyable sessions I attended was the Young Investigator Award. The lecture really focused on one of the ciliopathies, Bartle-Beetle syndrome. It's a complex disorder. The inheritance is, is complex. And the the uh, lecturer did a marvelous job in outlining his approach to understanding the complexity of this disorder. And really, it turned out to be a, multiple, a multi-genetic genetic disorder multiple genes involved in the process and, and it looked like you needed to have often to have multiple genes involved in order for the disease to present itself. It was a wonderful lecture from a young investigator that has had a remarkable publication record. What was also interesting about his discussion was first of all his enthusiasm. He clearly was enjoying what he was doing uh, enjoyed the numerous collaborators uh, that he has had. The other thing that I thought was interesting about his talk was uh, really the mech the way that young investigators enter into science and the importance of mentorship, the importance of collaborators who really want to help, and then uh, the need for a, a community of researchers to explore the incredible amount of work this gentleman has done in a relatively short amount of time. What did you think about all of those comments that he made today? I think those are relevant to all of us in science, that, that um, you, you need a team to work on, on problems. There are multiple approaches that were used, and you need to have expertise in multiple areas. And having a team to work with and having collaborators outside really accelerated his progression. And you saw that as he went through his talk. I also uh, was interesting to see how he initially focused on the disease. So the, there was this inherited disease that really drove his, his research. And then he took the findings from patients, went back to the bench. And then based on bench science and uh, progress, there were certain predictions with regard to the disease that he could then look at which turned out to be correct. So you go from bedside to bench and then back to bedside. It was also interesting when he pointed out that those kids could not, uh, with, with that particular syndrome, couldn't smell. Yes. And okay. nobody knew that until uh, they, uh, he, he figured out that, in fact, the, the defect involved the cilia in the nose as well. Yes, and that's where you see going from the, from the bench and going back to the bedside. I thought that was fascinating. It was fascinating. I think the other, the other thing that uh, I was struck by was the way he, he used a model system where he could look at the effects and the interactions between different genes or different alleles. So he wasn't just doing a sort of monogenic study. He was, he was studying the composite effect of a variety of genes on the outcome uh, of the morpholemics. Exactly. And, and he needed to do that because it, it, there are multiple hits involved in order to develop the, mm. to see the phenotype. And it was fascinating to see how his animal system developed from working initially with mice, which 
uh, expands the experimental time to very to months uh, to very long times where he moved then moved to zebrafish where he could do the experiments in days. What's always so much fun at the ASN is from a very basic science discussion, we were all treated uh, within seconds to a clinical discussion by the state-of-the-art lecturer, Dr. Krumholtz, who talked about data to knowledge to wisdom. And despite the fact that he was a cardiologist, and I think he was uh, quite uh, reticent to tell us all that he was a, a cardiologist, pointing out how much smarter nephrologists were, and of course, all uh, four of us would agree with that concept mm. intuitively. But he pointed out how, in fact, uh, what we did in practice was not necessarily supported uh, by the literature, and that things that we would think were almost impossible to do in practice were, were events that occurred in everyday practice, at least in the United States. Similarly in, in the UK, Charles? I think so, yes. I, mean, I, I think you have to have a prepared mind for these things. Um, often what we discover is actually at least partly serendipity. Uh, if you're ready for it and watching out for it, so uh, and and yeah, I think there's no there's no substitute for being being ready to pick up on new new ideas, new concepts, being flexible about it. So I guess that's the illustrates the importance of the late breaking trials, being able to integrate the late the information from the late breaking trials into practice and understand how it should alter your practice patterns. So perfect segue although segue was really a word of another decade, so I have to use a different one. But, but Fred, how are those nocturnal and daily dialysis trials going to affect your practice? Are you going to go to your dialysis provider and insist that some of your patients now be able to do daily dialysis? So I guess that's one of the challenges. You know, it, That'll bring me to another session, which was this afternoon, that was really very interesting, which is a discussion of symptom complexes in patients with CKD and end-stage renal disease, and discussing the issues that providers, physicians, nurses, often overlook many of the symptoms which patients have, and it underscored the importance of so-called patient-reported outcomes, where patients are able to provide information as to their symptom complex. And the information that is so interesting is that patients on dialysis have this multiplicity of complaints, which are often underappreciated. And we need to be thinking whether the treatment regimens which we use aren't, in fact, providing adequate treatment to relieve these symptoms. So the question is, will an alteration in dialysis treatment regimens result in improvement in the way patients feel? That's our challenge. But with the information that we learned today on daily dialysis, not nocturnal dialysis, but daily dialysis. Now I'm going to push you a little bit here, Fred. Will you go and ask your provider to at least allow some of your patients to experience or have the opportunity to have daily dialysis? Do you think that will be permissible? So I think the answer is yes. It may not be daily, but it perhaps should be more frequent dialysis. Maybe not three times a week, maybe only four or five times a week, or perhaps prolonging the treatment slightly. So yes, I, I think I will. And, and how does the change in reimbursement affect this when we move into this bundling system? So that's a very challenging issue, and it brings us to another important subject that's been a theme, perhaps, through many of the posters, at least, um, at this meeting, which is the impact of the bundling on practice patterns for end-stage renal disease care. And that's a challenge for the whole nephrology community. And it was very helpful and useful to have these sorts of 
posters really at, so that this issue really could be aired and discussed. The other thing that struck me throughout the week really is in the field of uh, glomerular disease, how we are at least learning a little bit more about mechanisms which will allow us to design better forms of treatment. And one example of this is membranous nephropathy where the, the presence of uh, antibodies to the phospholipase A2 receptor was reported first a year ago. Now it's been studied in larger numbers of patients. It's been related to disease activity uh, or relapse, and it's been related to recurrence of membranous nephropathy in, uh, in transplanted kidneys. So now for the first time in membranous nephropathy, we're probably going to have a marker that we can use to monitor our treatment and decide whether the disease has been immunologically put into remission or not. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. <coughs> and on the same theme, there was uh, a lot of interest in the role of complement regulatory proteins. For example, in uh, what's called dense deposit disease, which is a form of uh, membranoproliferative proliferative glomerulonephritis, various defects in uh, the effects of uh, complement factor H were, were discovered, uh, which can either be to the C3 nephritic factor, which is an antibody that blocks the effects of factor H on the C3 convertase, or antibodies to factor H itself, or indeed mutations within the factor H molecule. And they all converge on dysregulation of complement within the kidney. Um, we still don't know exactly why all that uh, C3 accumulates within the kidney, but there's uncontrolled activation of the complement pathway. And now we know some of the mechanisms underlying it. We can target treatment, because clearly the treatment would be rather different if it was an antibody-mediated disease. You try and control that antibody antibodies to factor H, for example, whether it was a genetic defect, then you might need to replace uh, with normal factor H. So I just thought it was fascinating, you know, <coughs> different types of nephritis, the immunological or underlying mechanisms, genetic mechanisms were unraveling. There were other basic science studies that came out yesterday and also uh, some today, the whole NRF2 uh, pathway in uh, kidney disease culminated in another one of these late breaking trials today in which the drug, which I must admit I have difficulty uh, describing, bartoloxalone methyl, was tested in patients in a phase two study in patients with chronic kidney disease and type two diabetes. And this very early study appears to have been positive also, although the, uh, the effect occurred almost immediately there's some side effects associated with this drug, but it does provide the possibility that we in nephrology may have a, another tool to, to treat patients, although it will take a while, I presume, for uh, that particular agent to be tested in a far greater number of patients in order for us to know whether or not it will have clinical utility. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of this drug, I must admit, before. I'd heard of the... Uh, NFR2 story, or some of it, which will act to inhibit the effect of NF-kappa B. So assuming that there is an inflammatory component to diabetic nephropathy, which we all think, it, it seems logical that some a generic anti-inflammatory approach might help. But I was surprised by the degree of improvement of, what was it, 10, 10 mils per minute over a, a six-month period. It happened very rapidly, but that was an estimated GFR. And so the issue remains... I think as to whether the truly measured GFR after a longer follow-up will show a sustained benefit or not. But it was, I thought it was incredibly exciting. There really is an agent that can alter the progression of a chronic kidney disease like diabetic nephropathy. Then that's where we ought to be going.
it's wonderful when basic science studies actually can be translated into a clinical, a clinical trial. Tom, what else was of interest today? As you, as you start looking at regulation of proteins, so I, I study proteins and epithelia, and as we look at the regulatory processes, which are becoming more and more complex, it comes back to an issue of getting these regulatory proteins together, sort of being in the right location in a cell. I know when uh, one opens up a new business, like a new restaurant, it's always location, location, location. And I think it may be a similar issue with how proteins regulate uh, a transporter, for instance. It's getting the regulatory proteins in the right, in, in the right location. David Pierce this afternoon gave a wonderful overview, a complex of proteins which, which come together to regulate epithelial sodium channels and how one of the key signaling molecules, which is a serum and glucocorticoid regulated kinase, is brought into this complex uh, by another aldosterone-regulated protein called GIL-Z. Um, and as I was listening to this, it actually, I thought about a, a, a work that was presented late yesterday, um, looking at uh, how other processes regulate the epithelial sodium channel. In this case, protease is something that I've studied. Product syndrome, uh, we filter many proteins, including plasminogen. Plasminogen in the urine can be cleave to plasmin, and plasmin we know cleaves and activates the sodium channel. The question is how do you get plasminogen and then plasmin to the right site to activate the sodium channel? And there was uh, a lovely talk late yesterday uh, by uh, an investigator, Rob Palmer, who's at UCSD, showing that there's a receptor for um, plasminogen, which is expressed in, in epithelial cells probably in, in close proximity of the epithelial sodium channel, which will allow then plasminogen to uh, come in close contact with the sodium channel. Urokinase is present probably in a similar location, then cleaves plasminogen to plasmin, and plasmin then can cleave and activate the sodium channel. So Tom, you have spent your career in this environment of trying to understand basic physiological properties of the organ system that we so love. What keeps you so enthusiastic and so excited about this whole field? It's what brought many of us into nephrology in the first place. We all enjoyed learning about fluid and electrolytes and acid base in medical school, and, and that were, was, at least for me, one of the areas of nephrology that made me think, oh, well, yes, I want to do this. And, and happily, the cardiologist this morning pointed out that, that uh, he, he should, too, all know something about fluid and electrolytes. But what keeps you so excited about this, about any basic science field? It's the realization that there's so much unknown and that there's so much to learn. And as you make advances, it opens up new questions. That's the most ex exciting part about science. As you move, you move forward, you learn things, you think you've answered something, but it opens, often opens up a whole new area to study. And as we're making progress in, in one area, there, there may be parallel findings that are relevant to another area that you can start moving into. But as I said, as we move forward, there are always new questions that arise. And that's, I think that's the most, most exciting thing about science, just looking at the new questions. We've been incredibly lucky, I think, to 
be working in an era when many of the the, the rapid advances in biology and immunology, for example, uh, are able to be translated into the patient. Yes. So in, in the area I'm most interested in, vasculitis, the discovery of antineutrophil cytoplasm antibodies some time ago reawakened a lot of interest in that field. These antibodies were at first thought to be perhaps bystanders, but with mounting evidence that they're actually pathogenic. And this led to new approaches to treatment. Uh, for example, with the uh, antibody rituximab, which uh, kills off depleted B cells, uh, which will in, in turn mature into plasma cells. And so this sort of understanding of this, the, the processes involved um, has been accompanied within a relatively short time by changes in treatment. And what may be the next thing in vasculitis, we don't know, is the opportunity of inhibiting inflammatory signaling pathways with things like tyrosine, uh, spleen tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and there's po the possibility of intervening uh, with the complement uh, pathway, which is definitely involved in models of vasculitis and probably in human. Well, I think I'm not sure, Ron, what, what uh, you think about the human one. I'm hoping that we get to try some of those fun drugs mm. that look like they're available. So as a clinician, one of the most exciting things about coming to the ASN is to hear the basic science and try to imagine or think how the basic science is integrated into clinical practice. And I think you gave a good example of, of membranous nephropathy um, and a change in view of glomerular injury. Mm. Yeah. So it is very exciting to hear and try to integrate this, so speaking as a clinician. You know, and I, I mean, I look over the last decade thinking about how the kidney handles sodium and potassium and how much actually we've learned how much this has evolved over the past decade. For instance, you know, work from Yale identifying when kinases as uh, uh, sites where mutations occur in patients with uh, with uh, Gordon syndrome, are, uh, and and seeing how that work has really progressed, not only to understanding disease pathogenesis, but to understanding why these kinases are so important in dictating uh, whether this, the kidney is going to reabsorb salt and sodium chloride, whether it's going to hold on to sodium and excrete potassium. I mean, this was unknown a decade ago, and the mm -hmm. fields just exploded. And there was, at, at the meeting, there was uh, a lot of work looking at the wind kinases and other regulatory factors which interact with the wind kinases to regulate sodium transporters, potassium channels. It's just, it's just incredible to see how this field has evolved. So dial yourself back then. Dial yourself back. Uh, 15 to 20 years ago when you would come to the American Society of Nephrology and contrast that today. What was it like 15 to 20 years ago with respect to what was known in your field when compared to now? I think, you know, the excitement was still there, but when you look back 15 or 20 years ago, the, our understanding of physiologic processes was really limited, and it's just incredible to see how things have, have grown. You know, particularly if you look over the past 20 years, you know, the, the major transporters have been cloned, and so the kind of studies we can do to understand how they're regulated have just exploded, and, and you see that at the meeting. Charles, you and I would have thought about glomerular diseases 15 to 20 years ago, and it would have been entirely on the basis of their histology and pathology not a whit, probably, pertaining to mechanism. What do you exactly, think is... Exactly right. I, and clearly the histological description is very important, so we know we're talking about the same thing. But it is only 
recognition of a pattern under the microscope. And many of the trials were entirely empirical and not based on our understanding of the disease at all. So I think that the two I mentioned, the uh, membranous and the membranoproliferative hemolonephritides, uh, can now be, you can plan a logical treatment based on what's known about them. But 15 years ago, we had no idea. The other thing is there's rapid advances in fields such as genetics, which have allowed us to identify susceptibility genes. For example, the uh, incidence of things like focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, uh, HIV-related nephropathy in, in African-Americans, which was originally related to the NYH9 gene we thought last year. That's become clarified. It's the APOL1 gene, which is next door. And we had a lovely presentation by Martin uh, Pollock about this, showing how this gene had been encouraged during evolution because APOL1 was apparently protective against trepanosomiasis. So it, that gene had evolved in that population uh, and is now linked to the development of certain kidney diseases. We had no idea about all that. I want to shift back to the sodium transporters again, because as we learned about sodium transporters, we realized how essential sodium balance is in hypertension right. and, and, and the importance of sodium balance in hypertension. And that's been translated into the care of end-stage renal disease patients. So to shift gears a little bit, there have been several posters throughout the ASA on the importance of maintaining sodium balance in patients with end-stage renal disease. And a lot of attention has been given to adjusting the sodium concentration in the dialysis path to maintain neutral sodium balance so that you can help control hypertension and to properly assess the volume status using the new bioimpedance techniques now. And there's a lot of emphasis now on whether if you can maintain sodium balance properly and control hypertension, you can really impact on the outcome of patients. There was an interesting poster I saw this morning from Alicia McDonough's group um, looking at actually the role of potassium for diet using a rat model of um, spontaneous hypertension where um, the rats had a constant amount of sodium, but as you increase potassium in the diet, you see the blood pressure fall and you see changes in expression of sodium transporters. So it's sort of equivalent to a DASH diet for rats. Um, <laughs> It'll, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I was just fascinated to review the data with her. How would you uh, advise a young trainee to be able to integrate the tremendous amount of information that's available here? What has been wonderful about the discussion that has just occurred is that you have been able to, to immediately jump from dialysis to transporters to bioimpedance, to the DASH diet for rats. But that has been a consequence of decades, quite frankly, gentlemen, of being able to, to incorporate a huge amount of information. And for a young individual, that, tran that transition from barely understanding renal physiology, renal pathology, immunology, to, to being able to integrate these factors is a daunting task. What guidance would you give a new investigator? The advice I would give, it's a, it's a wonderfully exciting field, and it takes years to appreciate sort of the variety and the depth of, of what nephrology really offers. So you, they should take their time, they should focus on areas which they're interested in, try to digest that, and then see how that relates to other areas. So the challenge would be to go to sessions which they're particularly interested in, which their research or clinical experience sort of um, suggests that they move to, 
but men take a step back and try to go to other areas outside of their domains of interest and then try to see how that can be integrated into their broader picture of mythology. I think the the thing that will keep keep up their motivation if, if they're clinicians is their desire to improve the outcome of their patients. So, for example, although I'm particularly interested in certain forms of kidney disease, I'm also interested in dialysis and transplantation and everything because I look after those cases. And, and therefore, it's of great interest. The, the dialysis session is of great interest to me. And I wouldn't have gone to it had it not happened to be in that particular session. But in terms of maintaining a, a, a research interest, you're right. I think they have to focus on what interests them. And some will be interested in aspects of immunology, some in physiology, some in uh, genetics. Unfortunately, the field has expanded such a lot that they can kind of pick and choose what specific area they're in, and they needn't feel they have to stick to it. Because actually, as, as time passes and different things develop, they may, they may change their interests. Absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's such a, a good field to be working in. So I, I absolutely agree. Do it, go to sessions in areas that you'll enjoy, that you want to learn more about. But also, go to areas, mm. think about going to sessions that you want to learn about, that you're not familiar with. This is a wonderful opportunity here, experts in the field, to present uh, overviews of certain topics that you may not be able to uh, have easy access to when you're held at your home institution. You know, take advantage of this. The other thing that I always found very helpful is to hook on to a mentor and see if you can go around, you know, at least for part of the meeting, along with a mentor. Uh, discuss abstracts and talks with the mentor, and also it's, it's a great way to meet new people. And if you're fortunate enough to have a, a group of several people attending, having a feedback session I find is very helpful. So everyone that attends from our group will have to present you know, a couple of abstracts they really, really found interesting to the rest of the group, because clearly we can't all go to everything. So you, 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 it's not just one episode. You try and learn from it, and we've got our CDs, we can look things up, we can discuss it. Uh, and, and also sometimes the actual meeting itself generates collaborative work. For example, if there are uh, differences of opinion about uh, particular causes of kidney disease that are discussed openly, uh, then those people can get together at the meeting and, and carry on research afterwards. And the posters offer an unusual opportunity to interact with investigators and to look for areas of collaboration. But I'd also encourage them to really spend time at the poster sessions, look carefully, ask questions, and really interact as much as you can. But I, I absolutely agree about collaboration. I think mm. this is a mm. wonderful opportunity again, you meet you, to meet investigators and to establish collaborations. And I mean, for myself, every time I go to a meeting, I wind up, you know, developing new collaborations. In fact, at this meeting, there probably will be two, at least two collaborations that I'll establish that I hadn't thought about, except for coming to the meeting. All three of you are experienced investigators, experienced clinicians. When you dial back your own experience and recall starting out as a young investigator, could you have imagined the path that you have taken? And were there times when a path that you thought you were going to be able to take was either blocked or required uh, changing? And what advice would you give to a young clinician, a young physician, a young investigator uh, to help them in thinking about the possibility that no matter what path they think they're on, they may have to change? Fred? 
I think the challenge for the young investigator is to, when he comes to the meetings is to keep an open mind, to see what engages him, what he finds interesting, what he finds challenging, and be flexible enough and willing to move into areas that he might not have thought were interesting that really stimulated his interest. Or perhaps mm -hmm. meeting a mentor, someone who stimulates them to, to shift career directions a bit. Has Whether that happened a, to you? Um, so it has happened to me, you know, going back to the nephrology meetings back in the 70s, shortly after my fellowship, um, it was hearing some of the work that was being done on perineal dialysis, and it really shifted my interest and stimulated me to more of an academic career, um, developing animal models of doing PD and looking at transport characteristics. And you've stayed in perineal dialysis. For a long time. For a long time. <laughs> Charles, you started, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the Royal Air Force. I did. Uh, and have done all sorts of things in your career. What advice would you give to, to a young investigator or a young physician uh, about the need to be flexible and the need to change? I uh, totally agree with, with what Fred just said. I think people need to be open-minded, they need to be receptive to new ideas, and they need to follow what they really are interested in because you won't get a good uh, outcome in terms of their career if it's, if it's not something they're really motivated to do. So science is always evolving, and your work always has to be evolving. As you, know, you go through your career, we have four to, you know, four to five year periods where you have a grant, and you always have to renew your grant. And you can't ask to do the same thing. Work has to evolve, and the meeting provides a wonderful opportunity to see what works going on, you know, to let you go into new areas, to meet new people, to develop new hypotheses, and to get feedback. I mean, am I going in the right direction? Is what I'm doing going in the wrong path? You've got tremendous scientists here who've been very successful who can provide feedback, and they do. I mean, and, and I can tell you, we're not hesitant to provide feedback, either positive or negative. And, and people take that, I think, in, in the right way. It's just to, you know, to move your work forward. I think that's, that's the other thing about coming to a, a large international meeting here with a lot of experts. Is so, sometimes, rather than just reading an isolated piece of work, you're actually in a room with a load of people who are all real enthusiasts and all experts, and you can gain a consensus of where the field is going mm -hmm. uh, and are liable to perhaps change your practice, change your approach as a result of that. So it's the interaction between the sort of community of nephrologists uh, that you really get here. And I think you know, all of us, it's hard to live in isolation. All of us need that, those interactions. Uh, and then we can develop our own research careers uh, in a better way. I think I would probably tell a, any investigator, any practicing physician, to follow uh, their, their passion, something that really interests them. And if that interest changes, to make sure that if they're moving into a different direction, they're equally passionate about exploring it. I think those individuals who are following a path that they find boring, it's better to move into something else than to, to keep drudging along. Absolutely. You only go around once in life, so enjoy it. Right. So this is uh, almost a golden age of science, mm -hmm. uh, a golden age of translational medicine. Wonderful opportunities to explore new reagents in, and drugs in our field. Why is it then that we can't stimulate more people to go into our field? Why is it then that we are having trouble translating the excitement that all of us have and love for our discipline 
into the next generation. In the UK and Europe, is perhaps not such a problem. But I think one, one thing that some can put some people off at an early stage in their career is when they look at the workload that many people, many nephrologists have to pick up. Uh, and it can be very, very, very demanding. And the actual the care of a very large number of patients can, depending on the structure of your job, can impinge upon your ability to do research and teaching uh, and other activities. So I think we just have to make sure, for, from my point of view anyway, that, that the discipline remains attractive by making sure there's a balance, that the workforce develops such that there's a balance between the different components of your job. Because for me, it's what's so exciting is to be able to do clinical practice and research. I, I always think it's important for trainees to find mentors that they can interact with, that, that they can go to to discuss their careers and their, their career choices, and, and maybe actually to influence, you know, there may be a positive influence on career directions and having uh, nephrologists in the community. I think if the more we can uh, participate in not only medical school education during the third and fourth year, but also residency education, I think may help draw more more uh, residents into nephrology. I, you know, what's happened to our institution and probably many other institutions is that 20 years ago we used to be attendings on the medical, on general on the general medical uh, floors. We're not now. We're functioning only as specialists. Hospitals are taking care of patients on the medical floors and rotating with the residents. So their, their exposure to you know, nephrologists during their residency is limited. So we're really working with our, with our residency program, I'm sure other programs are as well, to try to make sure residents have an opportunity to meet with nephrologists to talk about renal-related issues and hopefully to have nephrologists serve as mentors and, and, and discuss you know, their career goals and, and provide counseling. So I would like to really echo that point. I think one of the challenges, at least in the United States, has been as hospitalists and have, have taken over the care of patients in the hospital, the interaction between nephrologists and house staff and medical students is, in fact, a, a bit limited. I think we're, many programs are trying to reverse that trend now. And I think if people do see how exciting nephrology is, that will really stimulate an interest. So I think we need to be cognizant of this, pay attention to it and make sure we really interact with junior doctors and medical students. Mm. When you look at this year's American Society of Nephrology Renal Week, there have been a number of innovations. For example, all of us are now able to get 300 hours of uh, lecture time, of contact time uh, available to us by a stroke of, of our computers. That's one innovation since a lot of the meeting is now going to be available uh, in our homes. What other innovations, what other events that occurred in the last uh, three or four days were things that you thought were important in making your experience here a good one? I, I think the late-breaking trials is that started, I guess, two or three years ago, I think it was, am I right? Or is it, I think it's about that, has been an, a really important innovation because I think it really it gets people very excited about hearing about new developments. It generates a lot of enthusiasm. And to me, that's one of the more exciting parts of the, of the meeting. I think the, uh, the quality of the meeting overall, compared, say, with, with other meetings globally, I might say so, has been consistently high. And it focuses on the best quality presentations in the different disciplines within the 
nephrology transplantation. So I mean, I, I think that's what marks the ASN out as far as I'm concerned, is the, the quality of the, the programs. And I think also the poster sessions are very well done because they are given specific times and almost always uh, you can get to uh, get to some of the posters and interact with people and as uh, as we said earlier develop collaborative work if uh, you know you see people doing something similar to yourself so I think those are the things that, that stick out yeah, I agree that just the opportunity to have these poster sessions where you can you know mm -hmm. talk one-on-one -on -one with the with the uh, authors and and just go over the data carefully, uh, and then you have the opportunities to develop collaborations, our interactions, provide feedback. I mean, that's one of the things I love when I, when we're presenting posters to get feedback to to see how you can move your work forward. It's always, uh, I think, one of the real pluses of the label. We're all uh, looking forward to next year's American Society of Nephrology meeting in Philadelphia. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your enthusiasm and your time. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology.